Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Most people think that the main thing is holding them back things like lack of money, lack of resources, or lack of intelligence. But for most people, that isn't the case. Limiting beliefs tend to be the most common things that hold people back. The first one is fear of failure. The second one is fear of who the fuck do you want to be? What would that person say to themselves? Honestly, most of life is outside of our control. It just is. The intentional self-talk you engage in is within your control. So making sure that what you're telling yourself is based in reality, is achievable, is process-oriented. That is how, over time, you become this person you're endeavoring to become. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired Keep evolving. Welcome back to the Inspired Evolution. And we have with us today, Corey Wilkes. Corey, how are you there, brother? I'm awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, you truly are, man. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. For those tuning into Corey for the first time, I'll quickly do the honors. But as I'm about to say that Corey is a therapist turned coach, executive coach extraordinaire, he's got over 15 years of clinical practice under his belt with psychology, but then he's come to coaching, that really doesn't do it justice, man. I would love to start straight out of the gate with a question that is just burning for me because As a coach, I think many of us, and potentially those that are tuning in that are coaches, like, 
I really wish I had a psychology degree under my belt. I really wish I'd studied psychology. Like, you know, I got into coaching because the market barriers were like low and it's just, okay, I really wanted to help people and progress them further. And here we have you, which is like, hey, I did psychology and nah, I moved on into coaching. Can you explain that, like that shift, that journey, that transition? Like, I I just don't see it that often. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So you're actually, I've started seeing it a little bit more um, post-COVID because more and more people in therapy. So therapy, real quick, you can be a social worker a counselor or a psychologist and go into therapy, right? Like they're, they're, a therapist is more of an umbrella term. Um, but more and more therapists after COVID realized how much freedom they had working from home or how much freedom they could have <clears throat> doing, using their skills outside of the therapy world. Because this will answer your question too. A big thing with therapy is, especially in the US, I can't speak to other countries, right? But with the US, I can be anywhere in the world and do a remote telesession with you, but you as my patient have to physically be in the state I'm licensed in during that call. So in toward the end of 2020, I had negotiated a remote telehealth position with my old therapy job. And two months into that contract, I got fired. They were like, Hey, they were like, Hey, everybody loves you. Your patients love you. You're doing good numbers. Coworkers love you. Everything's great. But we, as a, as a company are moving away from telehealth. We're going to force people to come back into the clinic. <laughs> and again, this is like during COVID, like nobody had figured shit out yet. Like it was a whole thing. Right? Yeah, people yeah, were terrified to come back in time. Yeah. yeah. People were terrified to, and I was specializing in addiction treatment. So a lot of these people were trying to, to establish recovery and they were terrified of coming back into the clinic because they had a lot of other health conditions, right? So I was like, okay, the issue with it, because of licensure, I was licensed in one state, but living in another. I couldn't uh-huh. find, yeah, I couldn't find another remote job out of the state I was licensed in. I wasn't willing to move back because we had just moved like two months, two, three months ago. And in order for me to get licensed in the new state would have taken like four to six months because you have to like just the board only meets every other month and they only see two people at a time and they're already booked out for, for multiple months. So I was like, fuck, I've spent 12 years and $200,000 getting a doctorate in clinical psychology mm. and I can't practice therapy anymore. <laughs> what do I do with my life? Wow. <laughs> so, but... So that's when I kind of looked into, okay, well, what can I do? And man, the honest answer with therapy versus coaching is a lot of specifically psychologists, we can be kind of elitist when it comes to our ideas of coaching. <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I'm not surprised. Like, I imagine there's probably a room of psychologists sitting around going, oh, yeah, those life coaches. Oh. 100%, 100%. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what I'm saying. Because like, so... Uh, uh, a psychologist or a therapist is a protected term, right? Like you have to have a credential to call yourself that any, a 14 year old with a TikTok can call themselves a life coach. Like that's, like, there's zero <laughs> qualifications to be a legit. life coach, right? Like, and, and, and that is true. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going into coaching, you have to do things that help you stand out. Right. But all through grad school, we talked shit about life coaches of like, you know, hashtag life coach. I can just, anybody can call themselves one. So 
even though I had burnt out doing therapy by the time I was fired, it just hadn't really registered to me yet because I hated only being able to help people get their head above water. Because again, with the U.S., insurance only pays for diagnoses for a certain amount of time. So once I help you feel good enough, once I help you survive, your insurance will typically drop you. Because if you if you no longer warrant the diagnosis of major depressive disorder, single episode mild, your insurance is like, you're good. You don't need, to, you don't need any other help. So I was never allowed to help people thrive, to flourish, even though I had the tools, I was capable of helping them do that. So I was already burnt out anyway, but I had this, this stigma of, well, I can't go into coaching. Coaching's bullshit. Life coaches are bullshit. But then I read an article by the American Psychological Association, and they were basically saying, coaching is the Wild West. It is unregulated. There are plenty of charlatans and plenty of people who suck who call themselves coaches. However, and obviously, you know, there are a lot of good people too, and plenty of great coaches. But what this article was saying was, if you have a background in mental health in, in any capacity, why would you not join this discipline to raise the collective quality of what it means to be a coach? Which is why I'm seeing more and more therapists go into coaching. But one of the guys quoted in it, his name is Dr. Jeffrey Arbach. He was a psychologist and he ran a coaching training program to help people become coaches. I was like, oh, this dude's legit. So I went through that, became you know a certified professional coach and executive coach, and then taught myself entrepreneurship and, and writing and everything else since I just, I've done a lot of Googling. I've, I've thankfully come across a lot of really awesome people who are willing to, to help me, but everything is just, everything I've done since getting fired has largely just been me bumbling around, figuring things out, but I'm seeing more and more therapists go into coaching. I'm seeing more and more people go into coaching because you don't have to have a certification to be a great coach. You do have to be willing to constantly grow and evolve both personally and professionally to help other people. So do I believe you have to get a a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate in psychology to be an effective coach? No. I know plenty of coaches who, who have no formal education, but are incredible, right? So it, so it depends on kind of where you want to go from there, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And yeah, it was not lost on me when I first started because I a lot of my experience was actually coaching for organizations like Mind Valley and Eckhart Tolle and actually having coached one-on-one, like the numbers, that, more than 250, it's almost gone on like 260 people one-on-one now. Like the, yeah, the, the experience has really been quite profound. But I look even now where I'm at in my journey, I look back at where I started and the amateur coach versus, you know, when there was no market barriers to entry, even just off the certifications, like they're useful to give you a bit of a guidance to where you're going. But really sitting down and spending that time with people is profound. And I can imagine just how deeply having spent time in therapy with people, how much of an advantage that would be for a, for a psychologist to come into the world of coaching. And like you said, sort of raise the tide for, you know, just how the quality of what's what's in the market out there. There's a there's so much in there, but I think one of the things I'd like to sort of just unpack is in there you you've gone from a past where you're helping ill people get to neutral. From what I'm hearing, it's like because then insurance almost like even though you wanted to help them thrive, it sort of cut them off, and now you're going from a place of like people that are generally neutral, or you know going from a a well 
like baseline well enough space to like high performance and doing extremely well. Um, probably two questions emerge from that place. Like what are the consistent pieces that you see that people struggle with in both demographics? And then the second question would be, what is the, what is it unique? What's unique to the second demographic that is like people like what's keeping them from stuck to getting thrived. Maybe I'll start with the first question. What is universal that you find is the suffering of people that are trying to recover from get from, yeah, recovery. And you've mentioned even addiction, but from like ill to well, and also from like well to high performance, what's the, What's uniform in the human condition that you see across there? So to preface, when I did therapy, I mostly worked with people who were very low on the socioeconomic ladder. Okay. Um, So people who were very undereducated, a lot of times enmeshed in poverty. So tons of barriers um, just for day to day, right? Like some people, they needed five dollars to to pay for gas to even drive to their appointment, and that was sometimes too much for them to. They like, hey man, I got to I got to cancel. Yeah, right. So when you are so if you think about it like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <clears throat> you in order before you can go to the higher tiers of his hierarchy, right? So whether it is before you can focus on getting awards or doing things you enjoy or getting a lot of money, you have to just be able to have your basic necessities met, right? Shelter, food, water, safety, things like that. So once you have those, then you can kind of start to go beyond that, right? So a lot of people I worked with, because I worked in what's called rural Appalachia. Um, so if, if you're familiar with the U.S., it's just that that's where I was. Um, and there are a lot of just poor undereducated people there. Um, not exclusively, but that was a lot of what I worked with. So a lot of what they are struggling with is, is just basic necessities, right? <clears throat> Versus when I would work at a private practice and people would pay cash sometimes to do therapy with me, they were higher up Maslow's hierarchy, right? They had food, they had shelter, they were pretty good. They made decent money that they could pay for therapy out of pocket. But one of the things that I saw them all kind of struggle with to some extent was their own limiting beliefs, right? And this actually also answers your second question. Most people think that the main things holding them back are things like lack of money, lack of resources, or lack of intelligence. But for most people, that isn't the case. For some, yes, when you are low on Maslow's hierarchy, yes, you have to get those basic things met. But after a certain point, those are no longer holding you back in the way that you think they are. And again, this this isn't saying specifically with, you know, if you if you're, you know, banging heroin or something, you got a, some other shit going on, right? Or if you're so so depressed or you have, you know, suicidal ideation, there's other shit going on, right? Those are niche cases. For the majority of people, limiting beliefs tend to be the most common things that hold people back. And there are two types of main limiting beliefs that I tend to talk about. One is personal narratives. Specifically, a lot of people have a toxic personal narrative. And what a personal narrative is, is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, what we're capable of in the world around us. So for example, if I tell myself that I am broken, that I am not good enough, that is going to influence how I show up in the world, how I show up in my relationships, how I show up in in my work, 
how much I apply myself, right? So there are times like even though I may actually be intelligent enough to do something, if I believe I'm not good enough, I'm not actually going to apply myself nearly as much, right? Or maybe I grew up in a very critical, toxic environment. <clears throat> and what most adults hopefully at some point realize is if they have this critical personal narrative. Well, when you're growing up, maybe your mom was super critical. So she was always telling you, you're not good enough. You, you need to you know do X, Y, or Z to have any sense of worth. Well, at first, this is an external voice, right? This is your mom or, or an ex or a boss or somebody saying this to you. Well, as you get older, this external voice seeps into your mind and becomes an internal narrative. And what you realize is, at this point as an adult, it isn't your thoughts. Like you think these are your thoughts, but they're not. Actually, they are somebody else's words in your voice swirling around your head, right? So it isn't that you are telling yourself this. It is actually, these are your mom's words echoing or, or an ex's words telling you you're not good enough or telling you you're unlovable or you're helpless, you're hopeless, you're a piece of shit, something, right? And, it's, and once you realize this, that these are not your words, you can start to change it because you control, you don't control other people, but you do control how you think, how you respond and how you behave. So once you recognize that these are not your words, but they're in your mind, you get to control the words you repeat to yourself. Obviously it takes time, right? It takes a lot of practice. <clears throat> But as far as like rewriting your personal narrative, you know, if you looked in the mirror every day, this is a very, very simple exercise. But if you looked in the mirror every day and you said, I am fat, I am stupid, and I am ugly, regardless of your actual IQ, your actual perceived, you know, attractiveness or whatever. If you said that every single day, once a day for a year, your truth, your reality by the end of that year is going to be that you're fat, ugly, and stupid, right? Versus if you did the opposite, if you said, and, I, and you don't have to do like, was it from the help? Like you was kind, you was smart, you was important. Like you don't have to like repeat something like that, right? Like find something that works for you, but you can say something as simple as I am capable. I am improving every day. I have potential that I'm actively seeking to achieve something. Wh whatever works, like don't make it super cringy, but like whatever works for you right? And it may feel awkward at first, but again, whatever you consistently do, you get better at. So if you consistently practice that over time, at the end of a year, that can become your truth. That can become your reality. Okay. Because like going back to the practice thing, some people are Olympic level worriers because they have so much practice worrying. Well, some people are Olympic level shit talkers because they're so good at hating themselves, at talking shit to themselves, right? It's okay if this new practice feels awkward and, and you suck at it. You're kind of supposed to suck at it because you're new to it. But if you consistently show up, if you consistently try to identify these toxic personal narratives, if you consistently try to practice rewriting them, be more intentional with your self-talk over time, that can change. So that's it with personal narratives. Do you have questions for that or comments? Yeah, well, the there's a couple of things in there, which is I imagine those like there's places where the words from our environment, whether it's our relationships, our yeah, our relationships, our mother, our father, our 
girlfriend, our boss, our, you know, whatever, um, drop in. And, and like you said, I, I love the way you distilled it from like the outside voice becomes the inside voice and just the sort of insidiousness of the fact that that turns into your, like you hear it in your own voice, but it's someone else's voice in your own head. Um, but then even I think I just wanted to sort of tune in a little bit around the environment as well. Cause you know, those sort of, like, I, I'm just conscious of watching, you know, even just the environment that my son is growing up in, like watching whether I, I don't want to say behave abundant, but like, you know, if I'm arguing with his mother about finances, I'm not necessarily talking to him and saying anything to him, right? But potentially that's seeping into his consciousness that, you know, finances aren't a something, like a something to fight over or, you know, resources are scarce and limited, you know, and yeah, just I'm conscious that the environment also might be playing a um, a subliminal factor, a piece in the background of, of its, yeah. Very much that and like cultural or societal expectations, right? So one of the things I consistently hear <clears throat> from people who are children of immigrants is when you're a child of immigrants, you're basically allowed to be like a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, maybe maybe an accountant. Or a failure. Those are your five fucking options. <laughs> so like, and I, and again, like obviously like I'm a white American dude. Like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty like majority demographics. Like I check off. Right. But I consistently hear that from other people. Right. And it's just like, well, if I want to be a content creator, if I want to become a coach or an entrepreneur, like that's that fifth option of I'm a failure. Like my family won't understand. Right. And that, that tension, that pressure, that internal just, just judgment. Yeah. It, it holds so many people back. So again, man, like it, it isn't that you're not smart enough to, to become a coach or an entrepreneur or, or create content or a podcast, whatever. It's that you have this in the back of your mind of, okay, well, my family is, is, is going to judge me. My family is going to think this or that, right? Like people, like people from, from my family, from my neighborhood, from my area, whatever, they don't do these things. And that holds so many people back. There is a whole, and I'm conscious we're talking about the two different types of um, limiting beliefs that you see, and I'm conscious I'm going to flick out on a tangent here, but I really want to have this chat with you at some point today, and it, the, the segue is right there. The fact that people, like just the importance of having an avatar that you can see and tangibly sink your teeth into in the real world, someone that's modeling the success that you want to see, um, like you said, like in our families, like people from where I'm from don't do that, you know, um, whereas, you know, if I'm looking at even just, you know, I'm someone of color, let's just call it that, um, you know, <laughs> when I joke with my mates and I probably shouldn't say this out loud, especially on a podcast, I'm shit brown and proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're proud. Man, um, but like seeing people of success in my, in my field was always, like you said, the people that were considered successful were the doctors or the engineers or the lawyers. Everybody else is a goddamn failure, you know. <laughs> Amen, Ali Abdal. Thanks, bro, for, <laughs> for, for, for not putting together a decent YouTube channel, right? And so then I, I, I started to go, whoa, like just the importance, like just to be able to see someone similar to me, and it shouldn't matter, right? Just the fact that we're all humans and we're all one, it shouldn't really matter, but it does, right? Being able to see someone that, looks and behaves someone similar to you has a similar cultural soup to you seeing them do something that you want to do just how valuable is that for someone 
Yeah. So it's, you know, representation is super important, right? So again, like I'm speaking as a largely white dude in America, right? Even me, when I was growing up, I grew up up what's called a holler. Okay. The actual word is hollow, but we pronounce it holler. Because uh-huh. you know, Apple Appalachian <laughs> country folk are like, oh, I live up a holler. But the actual word is H-O-L-L-O-W, hollow. I didn't know that was the word until I was like in college. I was like, oh, it's a holler. They're like, that isn't a fucking word. So, because it's a holler, like it's sort of it's sort of like a valley, like mountain area. And like growing up, we would yell, we would holler, and it would carry to somebody and on the other hill. Up. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, man, like when I was growing up, I thought about, you know, being a doctor or an entrepreneur or something like that. But all the ones that I saw didn't sound like me. They didn't have my accent. They weren't from the place I was from. Right. And when I, so as throughout high school, especially into early college, I made a conscious decision to try to lose my accent. Cause like, look, successful people don't sound like me. I'm not trying to be some fucking hick redneck person, right? I'm, I'm too cultured for that. I'm, I'm too intelligent for that. Whatever bullshit, elitist bullshit I told myself. So I actively like try to sound like a fucking newscaster and just like lose all of my shit. And then one day, yeah, very much. Right. And then one day I was at, um, like a fraternity party and I, I don't drink. And I didn't at the time. I haven't drank since I was like 17. But at that party, a lot of people were drinking. And as you drink, you lose your inhibitions a little bit. And all of a sudden, everybody else who also didn't have accents, their accents started coming out because they had loosened up. And we realized, holy shit, each of us has tried to lose our accents to fit in, but we all have them. And I realized over time that like everything that I really love, my, my fondest memories are inextricably rooted in my accent and and my heritage and where I come from. So it's like for me to try to sever my connection to that is just leading to a lifetime of misery. Like why the fuck, who the fuck am I trying to impress if people won't accept me with my accent, with my upbringing, whatever. Right. So then I decided to just let it kind of creep back in because that allowed me to be more authentic. And I wrote this, I wrote an article about it a year or two ago and about this experience. And it kind of ended with like, let me introduce myself. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My name is Dr. Corey Wilkes. Like, I'm a doctor, I'm an entrepreneur, and I say y'all. Like, I'm from a holler, right? And it's just like, you can, like, representation is so fucking important. So, like, I wrote that piece and I try to do what I do, obviously to help everybody else, but to show 
that next kid that maybe is like me that is, is growing up in a holler and, and they say y'all instead of you all, they, they have these other country slangs. I want them to feel like they can succeed because there's at least one person that somewhat looks like them who has proven the model. So yeah, I, I fully agree, man. Like representation is so important. Yeah, and I think there's you you elicited two very important points there that it's important for us to be able to step into where we want to like go. And also if that potentially doesn't exist, just finding that log to stick on the fire, which is like, if it doesn't exist, this is potentially a torch that I can burn for the people, like the generations to come because nothing should be off limits. So I'm conscious I went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> we were talking about um, the greatest resourceful, like the greatest resource is actually resourcefulness. Um, and the point that there were two types of limiting beliefs. The other point within the personal narrative piece, which we went, we you said between the two points, we went into personal narrative being one of the key things that is a limiting belief for people that are trying to get from well to high performing. One of the key things you said in there that just came, dropped in for me, and maybe because I'm Indian, <laughs> just, it was like the, the piece around personal affirmations, you know, because like I've, I hear this on, online again and again and again where they're like affirmations don't work. Affirmations, like in the personal development space, people are starting to say affirmations don't work. And I find it somewhat challenging when they've actually been very powerful for me. Um, like one of the most, one of the best books I ever read for me was um, how to learn, learn how to love his love yourself. Like your life depends on it. Naval Ravikant. I'm not sure if you've come across it, but one of the exercises he has is exactly what you described, stand in the mirror, look in front of yourself and just tell yourself you love yourself. Like tell yourself you love yourself. If you can't give it to yourself, how are you expecting the world to give it to you? And all the neuroses that then are sort of bred from me, not being able to love myself to then go and try and seek it in all these other places, which, you know, I'm sure we can talk to the cows come home about even, but just that as an exercise has been touch wood so potent for me, and yet people sort of say it doesn't work. Your thoughts on affirmations um, and sort of how powerful they are and versus also where what are their limitations and where do they need to go further? <clears throat> yeah, so I'm a very no bullshit, pretty blunt guy. My thing with affirmations, so just as, as a caveat, right? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> hadn't, told, hadn't been able to tell. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. In case you up. couldn't. Yeah. So, so here, here's my thing with affirmations. If you have an issue with affirm with the, with the idea of affirmations, you can call it something else like intentional self-talk. That is totally fine. Right. The issue I think that, uh, trips up a lot of people with affirmations is most affirmations are just bullshit. Like I'm going to become a millionaire. Like I will be a millionaire in six months. Like shut the fuck up. Like unless you're actively taking action to set that in motion, just shut the fuck up. Right. Most affirmations are just delusional or people only say them out of just like, 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 like a rote practice. Like you're just, you're saying it over and over again, but you're not fully connecting with the, the intent behind it. So even something as simple as, you know, I, I love myself. Okay, cool. That is, that is a legit self affirming phrase or, or an intentional self-talk cognitive reframe whatever the fuck jargon we'll put on. That's solid. However, you and I can both sit there in the mirror every day and say that. But if you are actively trying to, to authentically show up and embrace that and let that seep into your, your soul, your fucking existence, you're going to have a way better outcome. First, if I'm just like, I love myself, like fucking like the, the Bart Simpson meme where he's just like, he's in detention. He's like, I love myself. I love myself. That won't do fuck all. It just won't. 
right? And I think that is the thing that trips most people up is either they do affirmations that they're not actually connecting with. They're doing affirmations that are just delusional or they haven't found ones that resonate with them and are the embodiment of the internal, the self-talk that they want to engage in on a day-to-day basis. So if you do those, if you find something that works for you, that the, the way I think about it is, who the fuck do you want to be? What would that person say to themselves? How, what are the thoughts going on in that person's head that if they were in your head, you would be closer to, to becoming this better version of yourself, right? That is probably the simplest place to start with whatever type of affirmation or positive self-talk or intentional cognitive reframing, whatever phrase you want to put on it. That is probably the simplest place I personally would start of, okay, I know I have an idea of where I want to be in life in five years, but who is the person I want to be in five years or 20 years or whatever? Okay, how do they think on a day-to-day basis? What thoughts are going on in their head? How do they speak to themselves? What is their internal, their personal narrative? Because maybe I currently have a toxic personal narrative, but they have an empowering personal narrative. What is the difference? Let me write out mine today and then let me write out theirs 5, 10, 20 years from now. And then let me try to just slowly embrace how they talk to themselves. And over time, that can override how I talk to myself right now. It's really highlighting the importance of self-talk. And thank you so much for sharing that as well. And one of the things that's dropping in for me as you're sharing is also the importance of potentially, and maybe if I'm off the mark, you can correct me here, but yeah, uh, as you were sharing, uh, like some of the bullshit affirmations, and I don't want to call it that because I have so much respect for affirmations, but I'm just going to call it some of the bullshit affirmations are like, oh yeah, like I'm a millionaire or I'm this. Well, you know, touch what some of us are, so that's fine. But like the, I'm a like I'm a trillionaire, whatever. You know, like let's just use that as a really obvious one that just speaks to the, what I'm trying to say. I'm a trillionaire, and you can feel that that's inauthentic, right? And you're trying to gas yourself up. The importance of highlighting something that you know again, is journey-oriented rather than outcome-oriented. You know, it's like, I'm getting better every day. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm exercising courage to the best of my ability wherever I can in every moment, and I'm getting more and more courageous every day. You know, I'm becoming more loving every day. I'm becoming kinder every day. I'm becoming stronger every day. I'm becoming more confident every day. Um, yeah, being more journey-oriented rather than outcome-oriented, I think, can also support the... Um, getting over that, the, the bullshitness that's associated with um, the affirmations that don't work. Yeah. 100% because you control the process. You do not control the outcome. Like you 100% do not control if you ever become a millionaire because you becoming a millionaire requires other people to give you their money. Overall, overall. Okay. It, there are niche cases, but overall, you don't control that necessarily. You do control learning new skills. You do control building a business or getting a high paying or, or applying to high paying jobs and becoming increasingly competitive as a job applicant or, or better at copywriting, creating courses, becoming a better coach, doing outreach, sales, marketing, all these other things. You control all of those because again, you control what you do. You do not control what other people do. <clears throat> So things like, I'm going to become a millionaire. I'm going to lose a hundred pounds. I'm going to get that promotion. None of those are within your control. It sucks, but that is the reality. You do control 
if you are making healthy decisions, if you're walking, if you're eating better, if again, you are learning new skills, if you are applying for promotions or different jobs, you control all of those, but you do not control anything after that point. But learning to focus on that process where you do control things will help you feel empowered because when we like, honestly, most of life is outside of our control. It just is. When we focus on all those things that are outside of our control, we feel helpless. We feel hopeless. We feel powerless. But even if only like 1% of everything that goes on in life is within our control, if we focus 100% of our time, energy, and attention on that 1%, that is how we feel empowered. And we feel that we have a sense of agency, right? Even something as simple as, let's say you're at a red light. You yelling at the red light, you getting pissed off, you revving your fucking engine doesn't change the red light. You do not control the red light. What you do control is leaving earlier tomorrow, taking a different route, right? Or, or even just doing some deep breathing to calm down because as soon as the light hits, turns green or whatever, you're going to speed off and then the cop's probably going to pull you over for speeding. Like you control if you calm down, you control if you take a different route or leave earlier, you don't control the red light. So any time, energy, attention you spend on that red light, on things out of your control is just wasted. Your internal narrative, your personal narrative, your internal monologue is within your control. The affirmations, the the intentional self-talk you engage in is within your control. So making sure that what you're telling yourself is based in reality, is achievable, is process-oriented, within your control, that is how over time you become this person you're endeavoring to become. I love that, bro. Thank you so much for sharing the insights in that space. Yeah, comfortably. (laughs) Can move on to the second space where you see limiting beliefs kick in for people. Sure. These are what I call the four horsemen of fear. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you about this today. Sorry. (laughs) Calm down. Let him speak, Emirate. <laughs> this is yeah. This is usually the thing that people people really connect with. So, the four horsemen of fear are the most common limiting beliefs as a group that I see. Other than personal narratives, these are the most common. The first one is fear of failure, and this is one everybody's familiar with, right? This is the one that says, "Well, what if I'm not good enough? I'm going to fail. I'm not. I'm not X enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. Whatever, right?" And the issue with this horseman is it kind of stops you from even trying. It's like, well, I really want to start a podcast. Yeah, but podcasts are super complicated. And I just, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what like microphones I should get or, you know, what, what software I should use. Nobody probably listen to it. I'm just, I'm not even going to try. Yeah. I don't have anything valuable to say. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have anything valuable to say. Nobody will give a shit about me or my story or what I, yeah, what I have to share. So think of how many, and you know, even people listening, right? Think of how many times maybe you've thought about starting a podcast, writing a book, doing something, doing a business, starting something else, traveling more. But before you even begin, you're like, yeah, but it probably won't work out. You have no idea, right? But this is the, the first horseman, the fear of failure. The second one is fear of ridicule. And fear of ridicule is basically judgment. Like what are other people going to think or say about me? Right. If I, you know, how will my family react if I tell them I want to be a content creator? Right. How will, you know, with me, how will my colleagues respond when I tell them I became a coach or I'm thinking about becoming a coach? 
right? Because again, I, I come from this academic background. Like it, it's, it can be elitist. Like how are the, some of those people going to respond and fear of ridicule kind of tricks you into staying small and not taking any chances. Right. And then there is fear of uncertainty. Fear of uncertainty is basically where we're so afraid of making the wrong decision. We end up making no decision. Things like procrastination, perfectionism, things, things like that. They can be rooted in a fear of uncertainty. Fear of uncertainty basically shows up where you overanalyze everything. So before you start a project, you go down a YouTube rabbit hole, learning every single thing you can, let's, let's just say podcasting. I'm going to look up every single microphone, every single software, every single thing, how to, how to edit, how to do all this other stuff before I even begin. And what ends up happening is you spend days, weeks, months pre-optimizing, overanalyzing, paralyzed by overanalysis that you never take action. And the fourth one, which a lot of people struggle with, but aren't aware of is fear of success. And you may think, well, Corey, why would I be afraid to achieve the thing I claim to want? And for a lot of people, it comes down to, to a handful of things. One related to personal narratives. Maybe you believe you don't deserve success. Maybe you believe deep down that people like you don't deserve success or that you are not good enough to, to warrant success. You're broken. You're something right. Other times we believe that because if you've never achieved major success, whatever that means to you, success represents crossing a threshold. So success is this before and after event. If I've never achieved major success, the only version of me that I understand is pre-success. Achieving success represents psychologically crossing this threshold and becoming somebody different, somebody I do not recognize. Destruction so of self. Whoa. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, what if I lose my ambition? What if I become corrupted by power and influence? What if achieving success means I've peaked in life? Well, I don't, I don't want to become super cocky or, or be too influential. I don't want to lose my ambition. All these things. Bro, there's a point. I just wanted to... I know, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. You're good. There's, You're a, good. There's, go a, ahead. there's a point in there that I, I had this realization, and it wasn't that long ago, that potential is a trap. Because I have, I like touch wood, before I started the podcast, people would always say, oh, that Amrit kid, so much potential. That Amrit kid, so much potential. Oh, that Amrit kid, it's got so much potential. When he sets himself to something someday, he's going to crack it. And I remember even the, the, the way I did like high school, the way I did university, like I chose like the hardest subjects just to keep all my options open, even though they weren't the op- subjects I enjoyed. I was just like, got to keep the options open. So much potential, so much potential. And I think it's very appropriate because at the beginning you referenced Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Just at some point you've got to kill off potential to actualize, right? And that is so... I remember just how hard it was to go, okay, the podcast, what's... And even now, like, I feel I'm very grateful that the podcast is as broad in its subject matter that it is, that I can actually talk to people about whatever I want because it still keeps things very open. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that that narrative of so much potential still 
is present, right? Touch wood. Because if it was like, Amrit, you're amazing at X, I would have just doubled down on X. One of my best friends, he is an incredible entrepreneur. And he would turn around, he's like, you know what? You being smart at some point is actually one of your greatest motherfucking limitations. Because <laughs> like, you got options. Like, I don't. I'm just going to get this shit done, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, man, some part of me does touch wood, actually. And <laughs> that, you know, this is an intimate conversation. I'm not necessarily overly smart but it's just relatively speaking we were just having a laugh and yeah just that point that you're saying like I find it so incredible that yeah just the fact that potential could actually be something that we all have and yet also identifying with potential again is a sticking point that stops us from you know moving into potentially what our success really is um yeah, sorry, I just had to jump in there. It was just something that was really present. Very good, because that actually reminds me of something else I'll touch on here in a second then. Um, that is super relevant. So with with the the fear of success, for example, you know, I've heard people say before, man, I've been the underdog my entire life. Well, what happens if I succeed? I'm not the underdog anymore. Like that means, quote unquote, that I lose my ambition. Because my, you know, being the underdog has what has driven me forward. I will lose that if, if I become successful, right? So finding ways of identifying where your fears are coming up, what they're preventing you from achieving one way or the other, and then finding ways to overcome them, right? Um, one of the things that I found, so early on when I would do coaching and things, people wouldn't come to me and say, hey, Corey, I have a fear of success. Can you help me with that? What they would typically come to me for were, more easily observed behaviors, like self-sabotaging behaviors. Yeah. So like, Hey man, I really struggle with procrastination or imposter syndrome or perfectionism or shiny object syndrome, FOMO. These are things that I really struggle with. Can you help me? And if, if you dear listener slash viewer have ever thought about that, that those are maybe holding you back, you've probably tried to find some productivity advice to help you with that. And it probably hasn't worked because most, not all, but most productivity advice focuses on symptoms rather than the root cause. Most of the time, perfectionism or procrastination are not your real issue because like perfectionism, perfection is unattainable. Like nothing in life is perfect. So perfectionism is expecting yourself to attain the unattainable. So you're setting yourself up for failure right there because perfectionism isn't a high bar for quality. People are like, oh, I just, I really care about my work. Shut the fuck up. Everybody cares about their work. Like if you're doing things that are emotionally, you know, resonant with you, you care about your work. You want to put out the best thing you can. Perfectionism isn't a high bar for quality. It is an unrealistic expectation of what you can achieve, which prevents you from hitting publish or from launching or putting yourself out there. Your issue isn't perfectionism. Your issue is that you are afraid of something. With perfectionism, it may be a fear of ridicule. Well, if I publish this, what are other people going to think? Oh, I got to put out this YouTube video. Until it is perfect, I don't feel ready to to publish it because people are going to make fun of it or people are going to do this or do that. Perfectionism isn't your problem. Fear is. So any productivity advice targeted at perfectionism isn't going to work because it isn't targeting fear. Same thing with procrastination. If you procrastinate, you still get shit done. You just get shit done at the deadline. You're just super motivated for a very brief window. 
Procrastination isn't your issue because fundamentally, most likely, finishing the thing makes it real. Right? Like if I'm trying to, to, to write an article or something, I may procrastinate, I may kick it down you know, the line and, and keep pushing back my, my timeline, right? Or my deadline. Because fundamentally, I'm afraid that if I publish it, it's going to fail. Nobody's going to read it. Well, as long as I keep it in the lab of my mind and I keep just kind of maybe tinkering on it or I keep chasing all these other projects, I'd never risk facing my fears because I never put it out in the real world. So all the productivity advice of like, well, you just got to time block. You got to do Pomodoro technique. You got to leave your phone on do not disturb. All these things are solid strategies, but if fundamentally your self-sabotaging behavior is rooted in a fear of something until you address that fear, no productivity advice, hacks, or apps are going to do a damn thing for you. That's the issue most people struggle with, with productivity. So logical question is, okay, well, what do I do about these fears? <laughs> right? Like if productivity shit doesn't do anything. The, the simplest strategy I've, I've found that works really well is what I call fear inoculation. And sort of, I'm not that kind of doctor, but my understanding of how vaccines work is you introduce a little bit of the bad thing in a controlled environment so that you can build up a tolerance or an immunity in case you ever come across the real bad thing out in the world, right? So fear inoculation operates on a similar principle. Assume your worst fear comes true whatever that is, like just allow yourself to catastrophize for a second. You fully fail, you fully succeed and become corrupt by power and influence. People make fun of you, whatever it is, whatever your fear is, assume it comes true. With that assumption in place, what is your plan? How are you going to deal with it, to recover, to course correct? Okay. Because what most people run into is they treat this question rhetorically. They say, well, what if I fail? It's rhetorical. But if you actually answer it, what if I fail? Now you can start to develop a plan, okay? That, that rhetorical, that circular just worry is where most people get trapped. Well, what if I fail? What, what, what if I change? What if I change? Actually answer this question for yourself, right? So let's say you're super afraid of succeeding and then success means you lose your ambition. Okay, let's assume you lose your ambition. What are you going to do then? Can you potentially surround yourself with other successful people who have maintained their ambition? If succeeding means you peaked in life, how can you learn to see it less as you've peaked in life and more as you've scaled your first mountain and are now at the beginning of the mountain range? Because what most people who are successful realize is after they achieve this first major success, whatever that means, they now see how much more potential they have that they actually are intentional, they want to achieve, but now they realize they're capable of achieving it, but would have never had the vision to see how much more they can do Beyond and that want initial to do. Horizon. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so little things like that, right. Or the biggest one I, I see a lot of people struggling with was like fear of ridicule. Well, what if I put this out and people make fun of me? Okay. The biggest question then is who are these, who are quote unquote, these people? Who is talking shit about you? Okay. Cause here's, this here's council, the reality. This council of elders that you've. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, so here's the reality. People who are in your corner are not going to try to tear you down. The people who try to tear you down 1000% are not in your corner. 
So why do you give a shit about what their opinion is? There's this great quote from Nipsey Hussle, and it basically says, you will never be criticized by someone doing more than you. You will only ever be criticized by someone doing less than you. Remember that. And like no time have I ever seen somebody post a hateful comment on, on my newsletter, my tweets, or a YouTube video, and I clicked on their shit and they did a goddamn thing. Right. Like there are tons of people with, with anonymous accounts who talk shit. I like all oh, this video sucked. Well, let me click on yours. You haven't made one fucking video, right? You haven't done shit. All the people, the pe- like true. people who, yeah. who give me constructive feedback or offer to help. Those are the people Extremely always valuable. doing, they're always doing as much or more than me. All the people trying to talk shit, all the trolls have never once done anything close to what I'm trying to do. So why do I give a shit, right? It reminds me of, I'm not going to say this whole thing. It reminds me of Theodore Roosevelt's Men of the Arena speech. Yes. If you haven't heard it, right, f- just just do yourself a favor and YouTube it. There's, this, um, there's a very good version of it where somebody like, um, it's called like Red Mountain. There's whatever the YouTube channel is. Um, Red is in the name. But they just, they go through and they do different um they, they record different speeches. This one is, is super good. Or you can just Google man of the arena speech. If you're not a man, cool. Person in the arena speech. That's fine. But the, the idea is it isn't the critic who counts. It is the man who is in the arena, right? And it like, so I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is basically grappling, the martial arts form grappling. If you've ever seen like MMA or UFC or things, anytime they're on the ground and they're doing like, they're trying to break somebody's arm or strangle them unconscious, that's usually jiu-jitsu. I do that. Well, anytime I've been to like an MMA fight, there's always people in the stands who are like, oh, that wouldn't work on me. Or, oh, how, how, you know, how did you get submitted by that? How did they punch you out? Like, motherfucker, you're not in that arena. You are not in there. It is so easy to sit on the sidelines and be, you know, an armchair quarterback or to sit in the, sit in the stands of a hockey game or an MMA fight or something and just point and talk shit. It is so much harder to be in the arena. So when I think about anytime, anytime I start to let fear of ridicule creep up, one, the first thing I do is I literally Google man of the arena speech and reread it or re-listen to it. And every time I'm ready to to just run through a fucking brick wall. But (laughs) I ask myself, are these people doing more than me or less than me? Are these people living in the arena? Because the people living in the arena are too busy living in the arena to talk shit about other people. The people doing more than me are doing too much, too, they're too busy focusing on, on providing value and doing great things in the world to talk shit. The only source of hatred is, is people who hate themselves, is trolls, is people who just want to criticize and tear other people down. So the fact that you're, you may actually be getting criticism, and I don't mean constructive feedback, I mean just straight shit talking. The fact that you're doing that means you are in the arena. That's why you might be a target. Because you're putting yourself, your ideas, your value out into the world. And sometimes that's just the price you have to pay, right? So that's the thing is like, oh, well, what do people say? Who the fuck are these people? <laughs> I'm smiling because there was a period there for a good 12 months where I was getting hate on the Inspired Evolution like in the YouTube channel. Like people would say, just like you said, trolls, right? And I would literally just cut and paste that section of Theodore <laughs> the, the, the speech and just, and I just, I wouldn't even reply. I'd just be like, 
the accolades belong to those that are in the arena <laughs> and for those that are in the stands, do your thing. And I just literally just cut and paste that part of the quote and just leave it in there and just like, you can reflect on that. I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting as well, just because we were talking about self-talk before and just how our self-talk becomes also our outer talk. And you were saying, you know, the discrepancy between where we are now and the person that we potentially like, like are enamored by, let's just call it that for now, or desiring, however you want to look at it, 20 years from now and the self-talk that they have in crossing that delta. When you're even getting constructive feedback back, when people are actually talking to you that are in the arena, the way they talk to you, like my coaches, the way they speak to me, man, like there's just so much love in it. You know, there is always, I have found love in it because it's like, oh shit, like I remember the pain you're going through and I wish someone would have told me this 10 years ago would have probably saved me seven, you know, um, can I, and, and they just, and they come from a place of, dude, you're doing awesome. What about this? You know, as opposed to like from the bottom up going, that's fucking stupid, <laughs> you know, and it's like just you can tell hate from hate. Um, even just I guess what I'm trying to highlight is in the tone that you receive um, the the feedback um, can elicit whether it's coming from above with love or from below with hate. Um, yeah, really interesting. Very, very much. And then one thing to kind of add on to that is like <clears throat> I used to get into this habit of, okay, well, I have this friend who's very critical well-meaning, but very critical. They're a very analytical person. They're very good at finding all the problems. So it's like, okay, if I can create the perfect plan that they can't pick apart, that's what I'll do. And I never found it. And then I realized there's always something you can pick apart. There's always something you can find a problem with. Right. And then I asked myself like, okay, but is this, this person that I'm trying to, to be my filter to run ideas by, what are they doing? Are they doing what I want to do? Are they ahead of me? Are, is their life a life I want? Are they my target audience? And the answer to all of those was no. So it's like, well, why the fuck do I keep trying to make this perfect plan that can pass their litmus test when I need to just focus on putting something out and then iterating? I'm a huge fan of just like put out something imperfect because publish is better than perfect. Just put it out, get feedback, and then continue to iterate on whatever that is. And that, that serves me super, way better. That goes super deep, bro. Thank you for sharing that. Like even in, I imagine some people's personal lives, like they've got someone in their intimate relationships that are super, you know, super critical of them, but they themselves may not be happy with themselves. Right. And yet we're trying to, or those people are trying to please that family member, whether it's their mother, their father, their spouse, right. Trying to be like, well, that person is, you know, like they, they obviously care for me. They love them. They love me. But, you know, I'm trying to live up to their expectations. But the reality is, how does that person actually feel about themselves? They're walking around with that inner self-narrative all the time and they're sort of sometimes ble bleeding that out onto you. And are they actually happy with their inner self-talk, the way they're navigating the world? And again, back to where we started the podcast, that outside voice becoming your inside voice. You've got to inoculate yourself against that a little bit, right? Well, and other people's expectations of you <laughs> aren't aren't your responsibility like what other people expect you to achieve or the way other people expect you to behave isn't your responsibility to to live up to that's a big thing it's like oh well mom wants me to do this my my partner wants me to do this my you know friend wants me to do this 
or they tell me I'm capable of this. Okay, but what do you want? What life do you want to live? What is authentic and genuine for you? Because you don't control their perception of you. You don't control their expectation of you. You control what you do. And you constantly striving for external validation. You constantly trying to do, to basically allow your self-worth to be dictated by what somebody else tells you is a recipe for a lifetime of misery because you're never going to live up to their expectations. Most likely because the people who try to put expectations on you, one probably aren't living in the arena. They're probably not doing more than you. All those other things They're, They may be trying to live vicariously through you, right? The whole like toddlers in tiara thing, right? All these, these moms who maybe they didn't do anything and they're trying to live vicariously through their five-year-old daughters and they put all this pressure on them and they make them go through all this heinous, you know, pageantry and things that the daughters don't want to do. It's different if the daughters wanted to, right? It's that sort of thing. Like, are people trying to live vicariously through you or are they genuinely trying to, to help you, to collaborate with you, to, to raise you up? Most of the time, people's expectations that they're putting on you is a way for them to selfishly live vicariously through you versus what do you actually want to do in life? What, what is, you know, meaningful purpose-driven work for you? What does that mean? What is, how can you be more intentional with how you show up? That is a question that is really hard to actually sit and think about. Cause that was going to be my life coaching point in that moment, because I find, and I just, this, the distillation dropped in for me was that James clear sort of quote about with habits, you don't really fall you don't rise to the level of your um, goals and goals. You fall to you the fall level of your systems. Yeah. Of your systems, right? We don't rise to the level of like if we don't have a clear vision. And maybe I'm just I'm extrapolating here. So let's see how it goes. We may not rise to the level of um, yeah. Like if we don't have a vision, we'll end up falling to the level of people's expectations, right? If we don't actually have something that's a bit of a guiding light within us, because I think, and I often reflect on this in life coaching is a lot of people, and it's surprising. Like if, you know, you're tuning into this podcast, just ask yourself this question. Have you taken the time to detail out, even if it's just like half a page, what, like, even if it's a paragraph, yeah, it could be four lines, what your ideal future five years, 10 years from now looks like. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a simple enough question and yet the majority of people that I speak to don't have it detailed out. Yeah. And I'm not saying detailed out like in a manuscript, like, yes, I totally do that in my life, but it's not for everybody. Um, but even just taking a moment to go, you know, this is what I'd like to experience this many kids, this like, you know, this is what I'd like to sort of see transpire in my work life, you know, financially, this is where I'd like to be emotionally, what I like to feel relationships wise, what I'd like to uh, experience, even just the kind of character I'd like to become in the world. Um, and when, I find if we don't have that, we're much more like a flag in the wind flapping about and the wind source is actually other people's expectations, would you say? Yes. And obviously, you know, this is, you know, potentially more of like a, a Western-ish idea of, of more individualistic versus collectivistic. I know other cultures this may not be overly applicable for. I'm biased and I will think that, yes, it still you should be true to yourself and not other people. But... To add on to what you said, a very simple exercise, just like you said, like think about the person you want to be in 10 years, 20 years, whatever, and then kind of look at, I would do two categories, external and internal. 
external, what do you achieve? What do you have? Right? So if you have a family, if you have whatever, right? If you have, you're, you're living in a good house, whatever this thing is that you want, right? Again, all these are outcomes. You don't control them, but they're things to strive toward, right? Cause you can put processes in place to hopefully achieve those outcomes. But the other category, which a lot of people neglect is the internal. Again, how do you think on a day-to-day basis? How do you talk to yourself? How do you show up emotionally for those around you, right? How do you have a sense of contentment or are you still overrun with anxiety? Are you able to practice deep gratitude or are you always chasing more, right? Have you defined enough or are you chasing more? These are two categories that give you a much more well-rounded idea of the person you want to become rather than only the external category, which is just, you're just chasing shit, right? And that's sort of like that hedonic treadmill of more, more, more. But that internal, that, that internal piece too is like, okay, but who do I want to be outside of all, all the, the, the tchotchkes and the baubles and everything else? Who do I want to be? How do I want to speak to myself? That is a piece that most people overlook, which is why most people, it sounds like a, a, a Dr. Seuss quote, but no matter where you go, there you are. Meaning you are always with you. Your thoughts, your, your narratives, those are always with you. And this is a, a, a reason so many people spend their entire day, their entire lives jumping from one distraction to another. Either you're, you're watching this, you're listening to that, you're checking your phone, you're talking to this person, you're, you're going through emails, and you're constantly busy. Yes, you may have shit you need to do, and you may be listening to podcasts like this one for enrichment. Thank you for listening slash watching. But there comes a point where you're not doing it because you're trying to fully show up. You're doing it to distract yourself because you actually hate the thoughts in your in your head. And then when do those thoughts come back? Because those thoughts are like, like if you ever seen any horror movie, right? Those thoughts are slow, but they're always right the fuck behind you, right? Like any serial killer, like, like they're always right there, right? Well, typically when you, you stumble and you trip and they catch up with you is when your mind isn't distracted. It's when you're laying down for bed. It's when you're in the shower. It's when you're on a long drive and you, you know the route. So you just kind of kick into autopilot, right? These are all times when your thoughts come back to you. And there's this uh, was Blaise Pascal quote about, um, oh, I'm going to butcher it. But basically, all of man's problems stem from his inability to just sit alone by himself in a room, right? You can Google the full quote, but that's the gist of it, right? And a very simple exercise that is very uncomfortable is go to a restaurant by yourself and eat by yourself and don't bring your phone. Like don't, don't have your phone out and just sit there. One, it's a great mindfulness exercise. If you're into mindfulness and things, it's, it's a great one. But more importantly, it forces you to take a hard look at you and the thoughts that are in your head that are always there, but you just stay distracted so you don't pay attention to them. Well, you can't change these thoughts until you face them and accept them and start to deconstruct them. Well, in order for those to to happen, you have to cultivate stillness. You have to cultivate periods in your day or in your life that allow you to just sit and, and observe the thoughts that you're carrying with you all day, every day. Very few people do that. And like, you know, morning and evening journaling practices are also solid for that. But if you want to like really push yourself, go somewhere, or even at your own house, you can do it in your own house too, but eat 
no TV, no phone, no, no laptop, and just sit and think or sit in just a room by, you don't have to eat, but just sit in a room by yourself, it's very, very hard to do. But if you do it, it is a truly transformational practice. Corey, you mentioned the four horsemen of fear. We've got the fear of failure, the fear of ridicule, uncertainty, and success. I love how you elicited just how important it is to look at, you know, what symptoms are showing up in your life that are potentially blocking you from gaining traction and underneath them is likely a fear. Sort of coming from the outside into those fears, I'd love to just pick apart something that I've picked up, which is that in my life, when I care about something more than normal, like more than average, something I'm deeply passionate about, that sort of stoic, the obstacle is the way, seems to show up more often than not. I My fears show up greater um, in places that my care for what I'm actually going to do is greater. Seems a bit of a... Fuck. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't really know how else to articulate it. Your awareness of that and, yeah, is that really a thing or is Amrit just weird? I probably am weird, but... <laughs> well, they're not mutually exclusive, yeah. Yeah, you can both be weird and be a thing. Yeah. yeah. So... The horsemen showing up, are it doesn't feel like it, but it's actually a positive sign, typically. If you are working a job that you hate or that is unfulfilling, and you're just kind of going through the motions, these horsemen are not going to come up. The horsemen show up when you are emotionally invested in the work you're doing. So if I'm just, you know, I clock in and clock out, and I don't really give a shit. And, you know, the work I do, I don't think about in the evenings. It's just, it's very much a, a paycheck, right? If the paychecks quit coming, so would I, that sort of a thing. And if that's your situation, there's no judgment there. It's just, if these horsemen aren't coming out for you, that's probably why. And for some people, they specifically want that sort of a life. They specifically want to just work a job that provides for them and their family. And then they enjoy their evenings, weekends, and the occasional week-long vacation twice a year. If that is you, there's no judgment, not for me, but I get that that is a situation for a lot of people. But when you think about either to do on the side or to maybe potentially take the leap into full-time creator, entrepreneur, coach, you know, Etsy, clothes flipper. Like I know people who like just, they just go to Goodwill and shit and just buy used clothes and then flip them. Right. Like that's, you know, whatever on eBay and shit. Totally cool. You can be the thrifter, whatever this is. If you're thinking about doing it, thinking about writing, starting up a channel, doing a newsletter, whatever this creative endeavor, more entrepreneurial endeavor is, that is when the horsemen are going to come up. And they also cycle. So maybe with this, let's say I'm going to start a podcast. Well, maybe initially it is fear of ridicule. So then I, I try to make it perfect. I, you know, I pre-optimize. I waste all this time. And then after I push through that horseman, because I realize, oh, well, it, it's going to suck at first, you know, MVP, it'll be fine. Well, I push through that one, but then maybe over time, fear of failure comes up. Well, what if nobody listens to it for a hundred episodes, right? And then I push past that. Well, then maybe 
fear of success pops up. Okay, well, how is this going to change? Like, what if, you know, now everybody knows who you are and you have, you know, no anonymity in, in life, right? These, these can, can cycle, right? And even if I conquer them or I, I, I deal with them, I subdue them for the podcast, well, maybe I want to start up a different business. Well, now they may come up all over again, right? They're constantly showing up. It isn't about making them go away 100%. It's about subduing them enough so that they don't hold you back. That is the main goal. So don't think like, oh, well, shit, I still kind of care what people think. That's okay as long as that fear of ridicule isn't holding you back from doing the work you know you're meant to do and is intrinsically rewarding for you to do. And you mentioned fear inoculation is the way that you prefer to deal with these fears. So taking a little bit of action towards that fear in face of that fear is basically a call to courage. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. And, you know, the whole idea of courage is courage isn't the absence of fear. It's recognizing fear and then choosing to do the thing anyway. Right. That is, you know, courage to me. And with fear inoculation that, that, you know, there are, many other ways that you can go about it, but that is usually the simplest one to to begin with because fundamentally we fear the unknown. That's even why, like, that's why if people are afraid of the dark, you're not afraid of, of being alone in the dark. You're afraid of not being alone in the dark. (laughs) That's that's actually what you're afraid of. Or, you know, or we fear death because we don't know what happens necessarily after we die. Right. Or we don't know how the, the experience will be. Right. We fundamentally fear the unknown. So by making the unknown known, or at least knowable, we rob the horsemen of their power over us. Fear inoculation is one way to make the unknown known because they're saying, what if I fail, right? Because that, that, that is the unknown, but then you answer the question. Well, if I fail, I will do X, Y, and Z. I will learn from this. I can avoid this. If people make fun of me, this is how I will deal with it. If I succeed, if I whatever. So you're making it at least knowable because once you feel prepared to deal with it, like, oh, if shit hits a fan, I feel ready to deal with that if it happens. Well, now that horseman doesn't have sway over you anymore. These self-sabotaging behaviors you're engaging in don't serve a function anymore. I don't need necessarily to procrastinate. If the reason I procrastinated was to, to avoid fear, if I'm no longer afraid of fear, if I'm no longer afraid of this horseman, I don't need to procrastinate. So my procrastination that was serving the function to help me avoid something I'm afraid of, over time, that slowly diminishes because it doesn't serve a function anymore, right? That's the thing with most productivity advice. It isn't all the Pomodoro shit. It's the fact that most of the time, you might just be afraid because the work you're doing, you're emotionally invested in. We'll deal with that fear, and then this, this problematic behavior will probably significantly diminish, Corey, there's a whole conversation to be had about our, you know, our life and the like, the sort of the refrain um, and the fears that we have of death and how that it can actually be instrumental in us living a good life. I've heard you frame it as, you know, the trade-off of living 45 years to be able to live 15 towards the end and, you know, just bringing that into question with your intentional lifestyle design. But I'm conscious of the time we have today and I think 
I'm going to leave that as an open loop for another conversation for another day. And I'm excited to have you back on if you'd be keen enough to. to oh, do dude, it I'm down. Me. I'm down. <laughs> Episode two, three, four, I'm down. We can do it. Dope, man. I think this one is about, yeah, just coming to terms with your limiting beliefs and conquering your fears and just fighting mediocrity. And yeah, yeah, man, I, I could totally thank you for your time here today, bro. But I think ultimately it is a lifetime's worth of work that informs you and your journey and your story and you conquering your inner narrative to be able to show up to do the work the way that you've been doing it. I'm just grateful for you, bro. Thank you so much for doing this here with us today. Dude, I'm, I'm very appreciative. I'm grateful that you invited me and I'm appreciative of the work that you're doing, the messages you're spreading and helping people. So it is a very mutual respect. <sighs> Touch. Thank you for your blessings, brother, man. Take it easy, man. Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 